Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We have a very special guest today. We are going to discuss something that um, I'm really excited to talk about, and it's very theme on with Disrupting Dentistry. But we have a special guest tonight in honor of Pride Month. So uh, Tabitha, would you like to introduce our special guest? Yes. Yeah, so just before we introduce him, I just wanted to um, make a note on why we're doing a Pride episode. And I think it's really important that um, companies and associations don't just get involved in Pride once a year for the month, that this is an all-round year thing, that we're always being prideful and making sure that we're being correct and we've done our cultural training and we're doing this not just once a year but all the time, but we wanted to definitely celebrate Pride as well because we know people around the world are still attached for their perceived um, gender or sexual orientation or their real gender or sexual orientation and it's it's not okay and so pride is there as well to raise awareness to help the marginalized and also to be proud of how far we've come and to celebrate it as well so I think that's really important just to note before we start that this is a once a month celebration but we should be prideful and really make a big effort all year round so I'm really excited to introduce William Castle and Jones today, also known as CJ. No one will know who I'm talking about unless I say that. He's an oral health therapist currently working part-time in private practice across rural South Australia and at the Adelaide Dental School providing clinical tutoring with the University of Adelaide. He completed his Bachelor of Oral Health and Graduate Certificate in Oral Health Science both at the University of Adelaide and CJ has recently completed a Master of Business Administration with aspirations to facilitate accessible, high-quality dental care for all Australians. And he has just been accepted for his PhD at UQ University as well, which is super exciting. And he's also the Director of Finance and Acting Vice President for the Australian Dental and Oral Health Therapists Association, ADOTA, and a strong advocate for a team approach to dental care. And he's a founding representative on the Colgate Advocates for Oral Health editorial community as well. He's a bit of a legend. Yeah. Hey <laughs> DJ, I have a question. Do you sleep? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite impressive my friend wow <laughs> it is very very cool but to start off which we like to ask all of our guests so cj's finished high school what yeah. made you pick going into the boh degree oh well to be honest i had no idea what oral health was i like my only exposure really growing up i went to the dentist i was pretty good boy. I went every six months um, and I really was only ever exposed to a dentist. I didn't even know um, about a hygienist, a therapist, an oral health therapist, never knew of those other roles. And I finished high school. I actually started a law and science double degree. Um, stopped after, you did the same. <laughs> I stopped after about a semester and a half, um, re-evaluated and I thought, oh, it really isn't for me at all. Um, and I was working part-time in retail and sort of was doing some research and I thought, oh, hang on a minute, what do I want to do? And I went on a trip to Nepal 
um, with my old school as an old scholar and um, got to do a lot of really great volunteer work with some of the kids in Nepal um, and sort of went along with some year nines and tens. And um, I think that was the moment I thought, oh, I really like sort of working with kids. I think I'd like to do something in health and I did some research and yeah, a Bachelor of Oral Health at Adelaide Uni popped up and I thought, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I think I'd be interested in that and sat the interview and yeah, got in and I've loved it since. I've been really involved in the profession and yeah, I've met some great people, present company included, um, along the way. So yeah, it's been a, a very great and welcoming profession. Yeah, I started off, people would have, uh, listeners would have um, would know when we talked about our first episode, I started off with law as well and quickly I went, oh, this is nothing like law and order, I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that I tell people this story now. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, funny. I hate <laughs> yeah. oh, And no. then you graduated from your BOH and you've gone on to do yeah. other postgraduate studies. So what led you to do that study? So uh, when I was sort of going through, I think it was in my second or third year, they introduced the um, uh, Graduate Certificate of Viral Health Science. So that um, is to extend your clinical practice um, to include um, comprehensive exams and um, adult restorative practice um, for patients of all ages. And um, I sort of saw how the profession was heading that way and I thought, well, any opportunity to extend one's scope, I think is always going to be beneficial and, um, you know, creates broader opportunities. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in my second year of uni. I think, you know, I've heard all these rumours about all the other programs incorporating it. And I thought, oh, I think if I want to stay, um, you know, competitive with new graduates, I thought I'll, I'll, I'll sort of go and do it. But you had to have two years clinical practice at that time. So I sort of finished my BOH, went, worked in Port Pirie um, and Clare with the SA Dental um, Service. And um, yeah, got some experience there and then sort of undertook that study. And whilst I was doing that, I also thought, oh, I've got all this spare time in the country. <laughs> um, I might do some online studies. So I thought I was really inter interested in management and um, sort of being a board director um, with the DOTA, um, my professional association. I thought, oh, I'm really interested in the corporate governance and how sort of organisations and corporations are run. So I thought that would equip me with a lot of um, insight into how businesses are, are run and, and give me some sort of core skills really and how to be a good manager. Um, so yeah, that's I guess that's what brought me on to do other study. And then at the moment with the PhD, I think um, our president of Adota, um, Dr. Nicole Stallman, she's been an inspiration and mentor and she thankfully is sort of nominated to be a principal supervisor for me. So um, we'll be looking at the oral health workforce and um, yeah, just very passionate, I guess, about the dental profession. And so what kind of look into in the oral health workforce? What What is your motivation there? So um, having worked in the public dental sector, um, we're sort of seeing at the moment transitional workforce. So in Australia, we haven't trained dental therapists. Um, I can't remember the exact year, but I believe in South Australia, the Bachelor of Oral Health program started in 2002. And I think the um, advanced diploma of dental therapy sort of stopped. So we haven't been training dental therapists since 2002. And as a result, you can sort of see the monthly numbers that are released um, from ARPRA and the Dental Board, um, and the number of registered dental therapists is actually on the exponential decline. And the workforce characteristics show a lot of these practitioners work in rural um, or regional um, areas. They work in public dental services, and um, they might also work in tertiary institutions. So there's this 
potential deficit that's going to be left behind as this workforce is retiring. Um, so it's about sort of, I want to sort of look at the workforce characteristics of the oral health therapist and um, sort of see what can be done to incentivise um, this workforce to um, fill the gaps that's going to be left behind um, by this retiring workforce. So, yeah, yeah a lot of work. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm. No, and I, I've often wondered too, because obviously we used to train dental therapists and we used to train hygienists separately, and now we train um, oral health therapists. But I see a lot of oral health therapists when they get out not wanting to do a lot of prevention. They want to do a lot of fillings and therapy work. Mm. And then you think at private practice, are we losing that preventative side in some aspects mm. as well? Um, yeah. It's more fun for them to do the other stuff, I think, sometimes I think. Or like, you know what, I train OHGs as well and I only do the perio side at one of the unis and, um, you know, they're like, oh, I just want to do fillings when I graduate. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but kind of see the point. <laughs> I like, I totally scrunched my nose when I was just like, like I couldn't imagine like having to do that every day. Like, it's like, well, I, I think we need that. both. It's just about having a balance of both. Like, you know, like, Feelings exist, oh, you've got to do them, but the prevention is so, is so important because we want to avoid them as much as possible. We have to have that, mm. that yeah. key, that was the whole design to do both, not absolutely. to want to work. To I, I, you know, so, <laughs> I'm curious. I have a question because it's just, it seems to be like this is another one of our big differences between Australia and America. Um, where are the dentists? How come they're not doing like, do you have a shortage in dentists? Like, why are they not doing this work? No, they're <laughs> <confused>. cramped. <laughs> <laughs> they wait for it to be a root canal in the crown? Is that what you're no, saying? No, kind of. Kind of. Like, OHTs, depending on where you trained or what your scope is, like, so, um, like, if you've got adult and advanced scope, like CJ, you can do a lot more. Some can only see kids. So, a lot of the times, especially the ones that see kids, a lot of the dentists like that. Like you see the kids, I'll see the adults, you know, and it works quite well. Or they're working in um, public health services, seeing all the gotcha. kids. And doing okay. All and, you know, when they're in public health, they're doing, to my understanding, and CJ, you can um, explain this better, they're doing a really big range of lots of different things in that public mm. health sector. Yeah. Yeah. In South Australia, it's mostly restorative. And I think that yeah. was one of the issues we sort of found. They weren't sort of fully utilising the scope of practice. There was sort of the drill and fill at the core. There wasn't that prevention. And yeah. I think as a result, it wasn't a sustainable model. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm in a very unique position. My boss is actually a dental therapist and she owns her own practice um, here in um, yeah, Port Augusta in um, sort of three and a half hours north of Adelaide. So yeah, I, I get to sort of use my full scope and we've got a great range of um, team members um, in the dental team. So we've got yeah, a couple of dentists who were oral health therapists before, before um, a dental therapist with extended scope, a dental therapist, um, myself, an OHT with extended scope, and then a, another OHT um, without extended scope. So we all sort of utilised in different ways. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. Oh, and a dental prosthetist as well. They've joined <laughs> so another member, which is great. <laughs> yeah, big practice. Yeah. yeah. We have it similar, the, the few areas that can have those expanded functions and do that here in the States. It's, it's a similar patient population that they're working with, you yeah. know, maybe like vets or geriatrics or kids or underserved populations. Yeah. The ones that dentists don't want to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it. 
<laughs> Getting back to the topic of this um, podcast, why do you think Pride Month is important? Well, I mean, a couple of different schools of thought, and I think you sort of really touched on it at the beginning, um, is, I mean, at, at the core, I think Pride Month's really important to sort of showcase to everyone that, you know, growing up and, you know, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, part of the community, being gay, lesbian, transgender, queer, intersex, um, you know, asexual, any sort of gender identity, um, you know, sexual orientation. Um, and it can sort of it help those that might be in the closet or sort of still questioning or, you know, unsure that, you know, it is, it is okay. Um, I think Pride Month's a great opportunity to sort of celebrate that, but really, yeah, it's shouldn't just be a you know once a once a year thing. Um, I think a lot of corporations, unfortunately, whilst it's really great to see that they show their support, it's often you know just a once a year thing during Pride, and oh yeah, we've changed our photo to um, a rainbow flag, and that's the sort of level of support we're doing. And it's great that you know they're at least showing support. But um, it can be more, I guess, you know, a greater level of support, really, you know, if they, they can choose to not remain silent. I mean, I think, Melissa, you'd probably be able to, um, all over the, the Disney, I think there was an issue in Florida with the Don't Say Gay bill that was being introduced. And I think, you know, Disney had remained pretty silent on that for some time. And, um, yeah, sort of the community rallied around and then they sort of spoke out, um, which was great. But yeah, it's sort of really important that these big companies with a great deal of influence, you know, can sort of support and, and drive change. They've got yeah, a great deal of waiting behind them. Yeah, in our last episode that we haven't released yet, so mm -hmm. listeners won't, we might have like listened to it by the time you hear this, but, but yeah. um, we talked about how loud silence is. Yes, absolutely. And, well, absolutely. and that, that sometimes silence can be deafening. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> it really is a powerful thing, silence. And mm. we talked about this at length in the last episode. But when you are, when you stay silent, you can look like you're agreeing with whoever is doing the oppressing um, situation. Mm. It's really important that we use our voices all the time as dental health advocates, as advocates for humanity, that we don't stay mm. silent because it is so powerful when we are. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's really sometimes it feels like almost crippling in a moment because you're kind of still processing what someone might have said. Mm. And you're like, did, did I just hear that? Like, did they really just say that? But um, I think if you just say, I don't agree with you, may I share with you why? Mm. Yeah. It's a non-threatening way to let them know, like, you know what, that wasn't OK. And yeah. this is how this was interpreted. Interpreted. Yeah. Yeah. If I. So um, for yourself personally, have you experienced any discrimination as a clinician? Um, uh, not, I guess, um, not sort of main examples that I can come to mind, but sort of working in a country area, obviously, it's just probably a bit embarrassing, but I, I, I'm out at work, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I don't hide who I am um, with my colleagues, but it's always a little bit of a challenge when you meet a new patient it's not something that, you know, I tell every patient that walks in the day, hi, you know, I'm CJ, I'm, a, you know, a proud gay man. It's not something that comes up in conversation, but I know for a lot of them, you know, it would be quite confrontational. Um, so it's not really something that ever comes up with my patients. Um, but yeah, I, I, working in sort of a country area, I, I am a little bit mindful of it. And 
you, you might sort of alter the way that you sort of present yourself, how you speak, how you talk, interact. Um, so yeah, it's it can be challenging. I mean, you've had the occasional patient that might make some homophobic, transphobic um, remarks. And yeah, I, I must admit I'm guilty. Sometimes I might just sit there and I am a little bit silent. Um, and that just stems from fear of, oh, well, maybe if I do retaliate, you know, what's the response gonna be from that patient? I'm in a position where I don't wanna upset them, but you know, what they've just said's upset me. But yeah, sometimes yeah, I must- very tricky. Yeah. We yeah, talked more... <laughs> yeah, it's not but as well about how jokes, yeah, like it's about gender equality jokes and how mm. that that off the cuff comment that someone just thinks is a bit giggling actually can be quite debilitating to somebody else in the room. And mm. watching ourselves with the language that we use and the way we communicate and thinking about the comment that you're making and how it can make somebody else feel or set a perceived of how you should treat someone is so important. And it shouldn't be the role of people from the LGBTQ community to defend themselves. It actually should be the role of all their allies to put, to call out and say, that's mm. not okay. Because mm. that person's probably feeling threatened, I'm not. So it's yeah. my job to call that out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because... And you know what else? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, you go, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> we do this all the time. Um, <laughs> When you said that, CJ, it made me think for a second. You you had just remarked that, you know, you, you want your patient to be comfortable. Yeah. But I think you have a right to be as comfortable in that room as they do. Like we, we as clinicians, we're always thinking about the patient. We know that what we do could be very invasive and very intimidating. Even the position we have to put our patients in, the way we sit over them to, to treat them could just alone be intimidating. But you also 100% deserve and have the right to be comfortable in your work environment as well. And mm. I think we don't put enough awareness, ownership, or even talk about how a patient takes that away from us in certain circumstances. Mm. I mean, in my career, it's happened to me numerous times and, and you know, in, in a different kind of scenario, but mm. still, you know, and, and it's depending, I think, too, on your age and phase and, and mindset in life you react to it differently. So I would encourage everyone who's listening to know that, you know, it's kind of like I look at your operatory or, or you guys call it surgery as an extension of your home because that's the second place you spend most time in, right? So like, would you allow somebody to come in your home and be disrespectful to you, to your face or to your family members? Mm. The answer is no. Like we'd be like, no, you're, you're not gonna treat us or talk to us that way, get out. And I'm not saying kick every patient out, but <laughs> although there's times that we would like to, <laughs> but I think it's just as important for us as clinicians to, to kind of establish this foundation and be like, you know mm -hmm. what, this is my home. This mm -hmm. is where I'm going to do my work. This is where I'm going to do the damn best freaking job I could do for you every day. And I'm going to be aware of, of all the things that this brings to you for entering into this space, but mm -hmm. it's gotta be a mutual relationship. Like respect has to be, a symbiotic thing. It can't just be one person being respectful and the other being disrespectful. So, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I understand what you're saying, but you have the right to feel comfortable too. Yeah, I think that's... How do we support, um, like, other clinicians, do you think, I think that leads into it, in the LGBTQ community to make sure that they're always feeling comfortable and we're being supportive? Yeah. I think using sort of, I mean, at it, uh, I guess, number one would probably be using sort of very inclusive language. So, um, and I think 
it's increasingly evident that a lot of people do use that. So, you know, referring you know, as someone's partner, you know, um, oh, I went and, you know, caught up with my partner or I stayed with my partner, You're using sort of non-gender specific sort of language there. Um, I think being sort of open, being aware of any, um, you know, jokes that you might make as well. You know, there's topics that you, you, you can, you know, make a joke about, but then there's other areas that are a little bit sensitive um, and, you know, probably just steer clear a little bit around there, but everyone's a little bit, you know, different, but I think just, you know, play it sort of safe. Um, oh, what else? I Probably not much that else comes to mind, but I'm sure things will pop into my head. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I think at, at the core is just being open-minded and accepting and, you know, willing to have the conversation, but also kind of the ability to self-reflect. So if you sort of say something and someone takes offence, be willing, you know, be apologetic, but then sort of be willing to learn and sort of, you know, take on feedback from them and go, okay, well, you know, what have I done? How can I word this better? Or, you know, how can I be better next time? I love that. Yeah, mm. yeah because I think that none of us are perfect. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I still shudder at some of the language I used as a 15-year-old, to be honest, when, mm. and I, but I know better and I do better. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's what I think it is. If you get called out, don't be defensive. Take it as a really good opportunity to learn on how you can improve. And I think if you improve, then people are respectful of that. You're trying. Um, mm. I know one of my very close family members um, is trans. And because she grew up as a boy for more time than a girl, it sometimes slips for me in the pronoun out of habit. Mm, mm. I was very apologetic. I didn't mean it like that. I'm really sorry. I'm learning and I'm trying really hard. Mm. But I spent 17 years saying he and now I had to swap and I'm 12 months into she. I, yeah. I actually am pretty good 95% of the time, but occasionally, mm. you know, I'm, and I'm, and I know how hurtful it is. So I'm a very apologetic mm. when I do it. But, you know, just being honest with, I stuffed up there. I'm really sorry. Yeah. And I think most people, you know, do realise that. I mean, obviously, I can't speak for any, um, you know, non-binary or transgender um, people, but I think as long as it's not done with a malicious intent, you know, yeah. it, it, a genuine mistake's a genuine mistake. I, I, as long as I think you're not doing it to, to cause any harm, um, I think most people are very, you know, <laughs> if you're willing yeah. to sort of make the effort, I think they'll always go, yeah, absolutely, no, that's fine. Yeah, and, and she says that to us. She's like, you've known me longer the other way than this way. Like, it's, it's okay to make a mistake. And she knows that it never comes in a malicious Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of apologising afterwards. We're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that I was, I picked up on the two, I was reading some stuff this week on how to be more inclusive and, and some stuff and using, I actually always say, part, I always say partner because I just never mm -hmm. like to assume, but I thought it is a good point, like you said, to bring that up to other people, you know, using the word partner really then doesn't make someone, when you say, oh, do you have a, a girlfriend and that person's like, oh, how do I now say I have a, a boyfriend? Yeah, like, yeah on the spot so using that partner is just such a, a gender neutral way to let them either just say partner back if they don't want to discuss it or mm. um, give them the opportunity to then say what they want to say you're not pushing them into into a situation so I thought that was a really good point that you brought up and I'd read it earlier as well so one of the other things I wanted to know though is um Obviously, as patients, that it, the, when I was reading some stats on it um, this week as well, about a lot of patients can be in the LGBTQ community, especially trans patients, can be apprehensive about coming 
into the dental practice about discrimination, medical discrimination, especially that mm. they sometimes um, perceive. So how can we support our patients more, do you think? I think certainly being aware of, or I, I think one thing I sort of jotted down is I think a lot of medical forms or enrolment forms, they don't have a space for people's, you know, um, uh, pronouns as well. So that's often a good indicator of how someone might identify, um, you know, with, with which gender or if they don't identify with a gender. Um, and often we might just have a male or female box. Um, and so for those that, you know, don't feel that they um, identify with either of those genders, they don't have the ability to, you know, tick another option or, you know, to identify as, um, you know, non-binary. Um, so I think having those options available on a, a medical form, um, you know, even asking preferred names, um, but creating sort of a workspace that makes them feel comfortable. So if it is maybe, I mean, something as simple might seem silly, but something as simple as a little rainbow flag or something, or if it just has a little sticker somewhere that says, oh, you know, LGBTQ, um, IA plus friendly um, sort of workspace or, you know, clinic. I think that's sort of, it's just enough sometimes for a lot of these patients to feel, oh, okay, no, I think I do feel welcome in this space and I will feel comfortable to sort of reach out and, you know, ask any questions relating to my health. Um, and that might be, you know, relating to their sexual orientation, mental health, um, gender orientation as well. I think that's where it, those topics are certainly quite hard for them to um, to discuss. Yeah, and especially, especially they'd be hesitant to always having, you know, um, especially through a transition when taking different medications and having side effects and then always having to discuss mm -hmm. bring it up and it not just be able to just get on with an appointment. I'm sure that's a big burden sometimes as well. Yeah. And really? commonly we see sort of um, transgender patients that might still have their Medicare card or private health insurance mm -hmm. under their um, dead name as well. Like, you know, they're, they're sort of, yeah, as you say, born, um, you know, maybe a, a male and they've transitioned to female, but a lot of their documentation is with their old name. Um, and every time that's brought up and used, it can be, you know, quite quite harmful and quite hurtful. So, um, I, yeah. Just, I had an experience with that because yeah. in the charting, the patient that I was seeing had transgender mm -hmm. um, and he... I'm trying to remember the, the details of it now. He was under his parents' policy, so it had to stay with, they couldn't change all of the information in the chart because it was processed through the insurance under mm -hmm. her female ge birth gender. Mm. So it was really, you know, just looking at the chart and I had to really think because I was so nervous of insulting him and not calling him by the right name but every time i looked up at the chart it had yeah. their former her his former name i'm sorry i'm trying mm -hmm. to stay on point there um so it was it was just challenging because i was so mindful of keeping him very you know in this, a safe space and and inclusive and and making him comfortable but it was really hard from that you know clinical standpoint because the documentation couldn't be changed. And I had said that, I said, why can't we just change the documentation on the chart? And, and yes, they had preferred name in there, but it was still, you know, it was still just difficult to keep mm -hmm. it, you know, just glancing back and forth. And you know how our brains are computing all these things as we're trying to intake everything. And that just, I know it doesn't sound like a big thing, but when you look over and you glance and you're like, oh no, I can't call them 
that name, mm. their name is this, you know, so it's just a little, a little nuance in there. So it would be nice if there was a way in our operating programs or, or something to be able to identify that and maybe just like switch a tab somehow so that all of their current information is there and in the chart and then the admin team deal with the other piece of it on that business side with insurance processing or even just the insurance companies like get with a program get get with what's going on today and yeah. and you know just accept it so we don't even have to have this much confusion yeah see we don't have that we're not so dictated by insurance here they, they don't have to control Ugh. how we can put a different name in the in the file and process it on a, onto like their their health fund card it wouldn't really matter like you could yeah. we can fix it up but we're not as that's another discussion we're not as in that's a whole nother episode right there more incidents than you guys have at the moment. Um, I don't know how long it'll last, but we do at the moment. <laughs> um, what do you think are some of the things that could um, make some of the people in that community not want to come in? What do you think are some of the barriers that they're experiencing? So that I think when we know more, we can do better. Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing, like for myself as, you know, a, a gay man, I mean, not that like, I'm petrified of, do, of um, blood tests, but, you know, I, I know that I'm not eligible to donate blood. Um, and I think that those sort of things, you know, it's, it's sort of an outdated stereotype, you know, that, you know, the, the population of gay men, you know, are at a high risk of contracting and, and passing HIV, you know, I find it, you know, a little bit offensive, but... Hold on, time out, time out, time out. You're unclean or whatever, it's just, it's awful, yeah. (laughs) Um, I just read a study Hmm. from Jennifer Sider, she said a couple months ago, she sent it to me. She owns in the States um, a bacterial testing company called Microblank DX. Hmm. She sent me a study that showed that they are finding periodontal pathogens in donated blood because 50% of the people here in the United States have periodontal disease. So now we're taking that blood and we're putting it in other human beings and we're spreading those pathogens into the, but you can't get blood. Are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) I'm turned up right now. I'm sorry. Is that that the same thing in America? Melissa, is that just I I don't even know. I have to research that. I don't know. Yeah. I did know that that was a thing because, um, I'm, I'm like, I want to throw up. That's disgusting. I'm sorry. Mm. That's and you, is, it, sorry. is there anything in the works to change that? Um, I think originally it was that you couldn't donate if you had, um, you know, sexual relations, I think, for a period of 12 months. And I think they wanted to try and shorten that to six months. But still, I mean, but I don't think there's anything on the radar to change that. It's, yeah. Um, but but yeah. Yeah, there are always blood shortages. Um, they want more yeah. people to donate, but they're not sort of looking at the eligible populations. Um, and yeah, I think on that, you know, there were some old practices, I'm sure some medical and dental practices, some places on their medical history would still have, you know, are you a MSM? And that's, you know, men who have sex with men. So it's that real outdated terminology. I remember when I was oh on some teeth out, um, when I was still at school, and that was one of the questions. Um, and I thought, oh, my goodness me. And just the, the way that made you feel, I thought, well, I'm not really welcome in this place. Um, and, oh, you know, I was still, you know, at school, so, you know, I was still coming to terms with who I was. But, you know, it was just quite confrontational when you're filling out some paperwork of, oh, my goodness me. Um, yeah, 
Surely you're not legally allowed to ask that anymore. And no, I don't, I don't think you are allowed to. But yeah, yeah. Like, please say no. Like mm-hmm. that's yeah, that's um. I do remember because I was a dental assistant before I did um, hygiene, and I can remember some of the old medical history forms being quite. Mm. To be honest, mm. <laughs> mm. it's like wow. Um, thank gosh we've we know better and we're doing better. Yeah, um, I can I can only imagine. I I wouldn't know what it feels, but yeah, it would be feel very discriminative towards mm. like, what yeah. am I gonna What's gonna happen if I say yes? How am I gonna be treated? Mm. Mm. CJ, I just want to thank you for your openness and your transparency, and and because I just hearing that story, like here you are, young, you know, figuring out who you are and going to have something done that's not fun. Yeah. And then you have that emotional piece on top of it to add anxiety and pressure into an already high anxiety situation. So mm. it's something that never even entered my like realm of consciousness. So thank you for sharing that and making me more aware of what other people are going through and experiencing. I really appreciate that. No. Yeah, <laughs> I um I also have found as well uh, from experience one of the other things that I found patients to be quite hesitant to um, to divulge, though, is if they are part of the LGBT community and have HIV, they're mm-hmm. very nervous to give that information. I remember a patient a couple of years ago who I just was not having luck with their perio, and I said, mm-hmm. your plaque control is really good. Mm-hmm. Actually, nothing else going on here. And I'm like, you've got no medications down, you've got no medical problems. I said, I just think there's a problem and he just looked petrified and I mm. said is everything okay and then he he divulged that he was HIV and I said oh okay well this makes a lot of sense for me now mm. um mm. you know I don't care mm. and, he said, and I said but I'm just going to treat you a little bit different as we're going to be a bit more aggressive with your periodontal like treatment because mm. you're immune suppressed and we really need to get on top of this and we're going to do this this and this and mm. we do this for your overall health as well and what is your, your CD4 count? What's this? What's that? And I just went into full discussion. And then you could just see him relax that I wasn't going to discriminate. But I imagine that's yeah. not always the case. Mm. And I think even for, for some of the community, if they sort of list that they're taking, I mean, now there's um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, you know, Travada, I think is the, the name. But PrEP is it's commonly referred to in that yeah. sort of a prophylactic um, you know, medication that people can take to reduce their um, chance of contracting HIV. And I think even just writing that down, some of them might feel uncomfortable disclosing that because that might then, you know, associate them with, you know, being, you know, gay. Um, so, yeah, they some practices, they might sort of think, oh, I don't feel comfortable. And, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. I walk into a practice and, you know, this is probably... A little bit sort of um, you know stereotyping here, but you know I walk into a practice if it's a, a straight white old male. Sorry, I probably don't feel comfortable. <laughs> um, Me either. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And you know, sort of looking at sort of people with you know that may be um, you know part of the community and are in healthcare or in in dental. A, a lot of those people are our bosses. They're dentists, they're practice owners, they're in management positions. So I think, yeah, uh, a lot of the problems sort of stems from leadership and 
this community doesn't feel comfortable, you know, being themselves and being welcome. You know, they feel the need to hide themselves or go back into the closet. Um, you know, I don't know, every time I sort of would, if I started a new job, it's sort of like, okay, I feel like I'm back in the closet. And then do I, you know, how do I, when do I get to the threshold where I feel comfortable about being out and being, you know, who I am and, you know, sort of talking about, you know, my partner or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it can be quite challenging for people in the community. And yeah. it's not that, you know, LGBTQIA, I think, you know, a lot of, I mean, I can't speak for women, but I think a lot of these people might hold quite misogynistic views. Um, and I think commonly in dentistry, we see uh, in my master's, I sort of looked at the um, workforce and um, I sort of found, came across a great term. It's called hierarchical sovereignty. And it's that sort of want that by sort of the leader, basically, of a, of a, um, you know, a health workforce. You know, we've always seen, you know, the specialists, the dentists, the doctors, they've sort of always remained at the top and they want to maintain that hierarchical sovereignty that they're always in control. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing and, and hopefully we can sort of break that down and sort of acknowledge that everyone's, you know, a core member of the dental team. I'm digressing a little bit here, but I think it's sort of all related. No, it, I, it, I, I agree with you, CJ. And you know what? Medical science is showing how important prevention is. And yeah. there, there should be a shift. There mm. should be a shift because what we do as prevention specialists mm. is, is connecting, saving lives, reducing yeah. risk factors, reducing the, the risks of non-communicable systemic diseases. Uh, we can reduce the impact financially on our countries. Um, we can identify people when they're in insulin resistance and help prevent them from getting type 2 diabetes if we actually leveraged preventative care the way we know how to do it. So there should be a change in that hierarchy because mm -hmm. what we do can have a bigger overarching impact than taking care of something that's already become diseased. Mm -hmm. Going back to that hierarchy, though, it's interesting because I had a conversation with a couple of female specialist friends the other day. We were sitting down and having um, coffee and they were talking about um, the difficulty of being female and in specialist because it's a bit of a boys club, mm. a lot of those things. And um, we were talking about, like, well, how do we make it more accessible for, for it to be more multicultural, you know, across more of the community, more females? And I think that's something we really need to be looking at so that, in our specialists, we are seeing a wide range of everybody, you know, there. Yeah. I think that, you know, representation matters in everything that we do in life. And, um, you know, this is why it's important to see people of colour, people from the LGBTQ community, to see women, different genders, because mm -hmm. little kids really look up. They're watching yeah. and really look up to that. And it's really important that they see who they are represented somewhere. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I think that's something that we have to empower our kids and we all have to work towards with using our voices to make sure that everyone in the community feels capable of taking on different roles because it is really, really important. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm very fortunate. I've had some very high-achieving family members, but my my grandpa was actually one of the first people of colour, um, sort of um, Sri Lankan born in Malaysia, an international student at the University of Adelaide to study medicine. 
So he faced a lot of discrimination and yeah. his partner, um, my grandma, she was um, a white English lady. So it was a mixed race, um, you know, couple. It was really interesting sort of hearing from my grandma the stories they had to tell. And then um, my aunt, their sort of daughter, she was the first female urologist in South Australia that sort of undertook the urology training. So she as well had some great stories to tell about how she entered into medicine that was sort of the boys club, but then sort of specialised. Um, and was literally the only woman um, that had undertaken the urological um, specialist training. And, um, yeah, she's done incredible work um, and specialised in you know, female urology. Um, and, you know, I think she's been an idol as well. And she sort of worked so hard to get, you know, more women um, into medicine, more women into specialties that, you know, have been previously dominated by, um, you know, um, males. And, I mean, I think it's great dentistry is changing, I think, we're getting, I think, actually the only profession I'm sort of aware of that has more females than males. I think in the latest data, I think there were more female dental practitioners um, than male. Uh, I think it's not much difference, but, um, you know, I think it's it's great that we're getting more um, equality across um, lots of different industries. A hundred percent. I found a good article day two written by a student um, in the LGBTQ community on different ways that we can help patients. Mm. And um, one of their points was, you know, make, reaching out to the LGBTQ community in your area and having, knowing what some contacts are if you need to maybe pass that information on to a patient that might want more information about something or knowing some good organisations around that might support. So um, Melissa and I talk about this a lot in episodes that we work really uniquely in dental where patients kind of spill a lot of information out to you that they don't tell other mm. other people. Maybe you'll be someone that they confide in and need some, you know, that they're struggling with coming out or having some other problems and, and re- being able to know some resources that you can refer them to, I think is, mm. is really good that we can all do. Or And exactly like you said, one of the things that they said there was having a poster or having a sticker that lets them know they're in a yeah. safe, accepting environment is really, really important. And it can really feel like not that much to someone who doesn't identify as part of that community. But listening today, I hope you realise that, you know, I don't walk into an interview and think, oh, my God, like when am I going to let them know that I've got kids and I've got a partner? Mm. You know, like that's not something that ever happens through my mind. And so us realising that there's that weight on some people's shoulders, it's really, really important that we help, you know, remove some of that weight. Yeah. Yeah. And again, CJ, I just want to thank you for, you know, having the the courage to come on and share from your experience and just raise awareness because like, as I said before, there, just the way you described that situation, I didn't, I never even thought of it from that perspective. So, and, and Tabitha and I say all the time, when you know better, do better. So the fact that you're here and you have the courage to be open and share with our listeners and our profession is, is so tremendous. And I thank you so much for that because Every little bit helps. And, you know, if you can just shift your mindset a little bit and, and incur, I would encourage listeners to be able to have that, um, you know, look at the end of your day and, and look at your schedule and just say, you know, how did, how did I do today? What could I have done better? And not to like criticize yourself, but just to always be open to learn, stretch and grow. Because sometimes we're so harried and we're just, we honestly, as hygienists, like we get a little bitchy because we just think, we have the schedule and there's a lot to do and we have to redo it on the hour, every hour. So we're kind of like 
oh my gosh, you're just coming into my world and you're messing it up and you have no idea how many things I have to do right now. But you know, like that's the internal narrative that's going on. But meanwhile, like that, that energy, people feel that, you know, they feel your negativity, they feel your, your pressure. And that's not fair for them because they could be coming into your space already having that. So, you know, I, I would really say, I just, again, want to say thank you because you've definitely raised awareness here. And I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I think it's oh, sorry. Okay. It's really nice and refreshing to sort of see all this community support because I think, especially for you know, not not just people that are part of the LGBTQIA community, but you know, other minority groups that have having this having support and people showing that they're an ally. Um, you know, it really gives one a sense of community, especially when they might not have a family that you know gives them that level of support. Um, and, you know, I think this, you sort of speak to any any member of the community, I think they'd all have their own struggles sort of coming out. You know, I myself had a great deal of struggle. I think it's almost been 10 years since I've spoken to my mum as well. But, um, yeah, like we, I think every everyone, you know, has their own issues, um, you know, their sort of family circles. But um, I think that's where this community and having, you know, pride in oneself and celebrating pride really sort of establishes that. And it, it sort of brings people together in this community and shows, well, family to these people and family to myself doesn't necessarily mean the people that you're related to by blood. It's sort of by those who are willing to stand with you, stand by you and support you and stand up for you and who you are. So, yeah, um, I thank you to both of you for really sort of choosing to, you know, highlight and, and touch on this um, really important issue. Um, no, and I think it's important that we all, if we know better, we do better. So you might make mistakes out there, but really, you know, doing a little bit of education, a lot of time cultural awareness training doesn't involve the LGBTQ community. And it would be really good if we saw more of that training so that people who haven't maybe had a lot of exposure or a lot of understanding can can access resources to make sure they understand what is the trans person experience and how are they affected and why, you know, and understanding why they might feel hesitant for coming in to, and what services they can or what is non-binary identities, um, what language is appropriate and what language isn't appropriate. Um, I think that, you know, using slurs and slang um, that you might hear on the television, if you're not part of that community, it's not appropriate to use. And, you know, understanding when it's okay to say something, when it's not, and the language and learning and doing better when you make mistakes. Um, but I would really like to see more um, of that in our continuing education. You know, when we go to full day CPDs, well, let's have mm. an update on, you know, what are some of the barriers? What are some of the language mm. we should so that we can all do better? Because I think we can all improve, um, myself included. You know, I'm always trying to learn and make sure I'm doing better with it, but I'm sure I can always do better. <laughs> So I think, you know, I would really like to see more education out there for us and making sure that we're being as supportive as possible because it is really, really important. And um, I, I made a post for Pride Month the other day and it's uh, with my um, relative who's trans and the post that I've made, you know, it, Pride's important because somebody tonight might go to bed feeling like they're not worthy and that was something that my relative really struggled with, with coming out as trans. And I saw the emotional turmoil for her when she um, transitioned. And I think the more that we can all do to support people through that and make sure that they feel worthy of, mm. of existing is so important. 
is just, you know, it's one of the most important things that we can do. So I thank you for coming on and, and helping us highlight all of those things. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks yes, for thank inviting you. me. I feel very honoured. Thanks, guys. <laughs> no, thank you. And like we said at the beginning of the episode, this doesn't have to be Pride Month. It can be Pride Year. <laughs> be an ally. <laughs> you know, be supportive where you can. Call out where you can. Language matters. Um, support means a lot to people. Um, equality is important for all members of the community. Absolutely. Amen to that. Thank you so much, CJ. It's been an honor to chat with you. So thank you again for listening to the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We are so excited to have you here. Please um, go ahead and subscribe and make sure that you leave us a review. We love to hear them and we'd love to hear your feedback, um, especially on this topic. In the meantime, keep your operatory or your surgery, your safe space and keep on disrupting. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.